Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center and you can also find this link in the show notes. In today's episode, we will talk about geopolitical intelligence and its role in corporate planning. And my guest today is Dr. Louis Sage Passant. He is the global head of intelligence at Novo Nordisk, the big multinational pharmaceutical company. And he's also a distinguished researcher in the realms of intelligence and espionage, which sounds absolutely intriguing. He has a PhD from Loughborough University in intelligence studies, and he also teaches as an adjunct professor at Sciences Po in Paris and EM Lyon Business School. His rich experience spans various geopolitical analysis and intelligence roles across the Middle East and Asia-Pacific, where he served some of the leading corporations in energy, financial and technology sectors. Additionally, Lewis is the brain behind Encyclopedia Geopolitica.com, where he explores the intricacies of geopolitics and he also hosts a podcast. So he's a fellow podcast host. And that podcast is called How to Get on a Watch List. We will put a link to that podcast in our show notes and you should absolutely check it out. On the podcast, he discusses the most pressing issues in security, intelligence, and geopolitical affairs. So everyone who's interested in what we're talking about here on this podcast, you should also like that one as well. His insights have been sought after by top media outlets such as the BBC, France 24, CNBC, and Harvard Business Review, just to name a few. Luis, welcome to our show. Matthias, thank you very much for having me. Important thing to note at the beginning, I mentioned Novo Nordisk, and uh, you rightly said, well, you're speaking on uh, in a personal capacity here today as an academic, as a researcher, not on behalf of your company. So to get that out of the way and clear. Yeah, thanks very much. Perfect. Uh, to start things off, can you explain to our listeners how geopolitical intelligence integrates into the strategic planning of a multinational corporation today? That's, I think, one of the most important important questions facing businesses right now. You know, we had the World Economic Forum in Davos, where geopolitics was one of the sort of primary topics discussed. The short answer to your question is it, it doesn't right now. Very few companies have figured out how to approach this problem. Everyone's starting to realize there is a problem, that geopolitics is a business issue, that it's a, a market shaping force. But we're not quite at the solution stage. And I think it's There's a bit of disaggregation, there's a bit of a scramble to work out who within companies can provide this insight, who can help with it. Traditionally, security intelligence teams have been focused more on the tactical world. So dealing with acute security threats, someone making threats to an executive, keeping travelers safe when they're, they're traveling around the world for business purposes, responding to those kind of crisis issues. We're now moving into a more strategic direction. More and more security intelligence teams are starting to look at 
how geopolitics works, what the risks are. Now, what I should say is that they've these teams have been looking at geopolitics for a long time, but they've been looking at it through a security crisis lens in a very reactive way. You know, something blows up somewhere in the world. What does this mean for our company? How can we keep people safe? Where they're starting to evolve, they're starting to move in a more strategic direction, they're now starting to be more anticipatory. They're looking at geopolitics in a way of how could this impact the business in the coming months, in the coming years, in the coming decades in some cases. It's a slow evolution in the field, but it is happening. There's a lot of interesting discussion there. I think the reason for the disconnect right now is that the security intelligence label is not necessarily helpful in a lot of companies. I think a lot of business leaders in particular are used to going to their security intelligence teams for those tactical issues. They're they're used to dealing with corporate security when it comes to very acute, very tactical issues. They're not necessarily expecting to turn to them for business advice. So I think that label has not necessarily held the field back because it does carry a lot of credibility. You know, it's it's very understood that, that these teams have deep knowledge, that they've got a lot of excellent sources that they can reach out to on these issues. But they don't necessarily have the habit of looking to them for geopolitical kind of corporate advice. That's where I think that change is slowly starting to happen. Some of the more advanced companies are starting to integrate this into their strategic planning. Uh, but it's very much a new thing and it's it's very rare at this stage. So hopefully that, that kind of sets the scene as to, to where the field's at. In your view, what are major geopolitical events that shape corporate decision making and strategy today? I think there's been a few in the last few years that have really caught people's attention. You know, this field tends to evolve in response to crises, in response to big incidents. Anytime there's a, a major conflict or a major disruptive event, I see the even the number of kind of LinkedIn roles for this field suddenly shoots up. People look at this and go, wow, we need to pay attention to this. So I think the war in Ukraine was a big one. I think a lot of companies suddenly realized, you know, this can These sorts of events can harm us in more ways than simply security risks. If raw materials are suddenly taken off the table, if sanctions regimes are applied to certain markets, that can be very disruptive. The war in the Middle East has followed hot on the heels there, and I think that's added uh, yet another problem. The Red Sea crisis, for example, you know, has, has gotten companies looking at their supply chains, trying to understand how this impacts them uh, at a time where shipping prices were already pretty high. It's a very uncomfortable dynamic for a lot of companies to, to eat those new costs. And then I think there's the kind of macro geopolitical environment, the, the US-China tensions, the talk of decoupling, de-risking, whatever term you want to use, has gotten companies looking at their overall footprints globally. And they're starting to understand that, that they need to understand geopolitics better and that they need to start building this in so that if For example, there was a conflict in the region or a, a sanctions regime focused uh, on a split between those two countries. Would their supply chains be significantly disrupted and, and how can they insulate themselves from that? Sometimes one has the impression, and there's also a lot of discussion going on, that we face a multitude of simultaneous crises People have talked about uh, polycrises or something like that. Is that really true or is that just a feeling that we have this vague idea that, you know, in the good old days, everything was easier, slower, and maybe because we live in an age of real-time information, we just have the impression that so many things are going on at the same time. What's your take on that? 
I really like this question. You know, I've I've seen the polycrisis term described as as kind of lazy geopolitics uh, that things have always been complicated. I I would disagree slightly. I think it comes from an observer's perspective. If you think about your average business executive, someone who's, you know, they've had a 30-year career in their company, they understand their company intimately, maybe they've worked in several industries, they have a, a very very good business sense and a lot of experience. All of that experience exists in in a post-Cold War kind of Pax Americana geopolitical landscape where the terrain was relatively flat. There were problems, there were crises, we've had various conflicts and so on that they've had to navigate, but they've always been almost ancillary to business. They're, they're minor crises that can cause a bit of disruptions and physical security risks and so on in some parts of the world for some parts of the business. They were never existential risks. They were never so massive that they they could simply shut business down entirely. I think that changed with the pandemic in particular. I think that was the first time that business leaders were were forced to reckon with something that they couldn't delegate to a chief security officer, that, that their entire company just ground to a halt. Every factory, every office had to be emptied. That was a, a pretty radical moment. So I think that was the moment where people realize something different is happening. And this is happening against the backdrop of a very new form of geopolitics as well. We're seeing challenges to the, the US-led security order that has pretty much set the stage for global trade for the last 80 years and certainly the last 30 years. So this is something that, although it's happened before, although we've had complex times and intense geopolitical competition before, in the kind of 30-year career span of your average executive, it hasn't. This is this is unprecedented for them. And then if you think about the structure of most modern businesses, they look radically different to, to how they were structured the last time this kind of competition happened. So it's, it's also an unprecedented challenge for this type of business, for the kind of globally integrated enterprise. So basically what you're saying is that we, we had an anomaly of history, a very brief, calm period where, you know... History ended to cite a very influential study, and then it uh, restarted in one way or another, and we're still, or we're again in a very complex environment. I know that you have experience across different sectors, including energy, for example, being one. Would you say that the awareness of those threats and, and opportunities also varies from sector to sector? And, and I'm asking because, in particular, energy oil producing companies, for example, they have been operating in volatile environments forever, basically. So it must be, I would assume, very much part of their DNA to factor those risks into their business calculations, try to mitigate them as far as possible. Does that differ depending on which sector you're looking into? It definitely does. So my research, I looked at uh, the history of this field and I, I kind of tried to debunk the idea that intelligence in the private sector is a new thing that had only emerged after 9-11. What I found is you, you can go back to the East India Company, you can go back to Lloyd's of London, the, the shipping brokers, and they had intelligence functions before the British government even did. And we think of, of MI6, uh, the, the Security Intelligence Service of the UK, as the oldest continually operating intelligence service. Well, the private sector predates that by a century, in fact. So it's nothing new. Companies have had these functions for a long time, but in a very ad hoc way. It, it was never a, a universal thing. It was that a company was just so big or so risk exposed that they had to have this function and, and many others didn't. Today, that's very different. Almost every company has some sort of intelligence function, but at different levels of maturity. And what you say about energy in particular really captures an important point there, which is 
there's an excellent scholar in this field, Dr. Maria Robson Morrow at Harvard University, who's looked at some of the more recent history. And she found that in the 1970s and 80s, the energy industry was was really the, the pioneer in this field of having intelligence as a standard function that you had to have. And it grew from there into other industries. And I think it's exactly for the reasons you described, that they're operating in more volatile places. They're dealing with more direct threats that other companies haven't necessarily faced as kind of globalizations evolved more types of industries have had to go to more places traditionally if you were a you know a bank in the UK you you maybe only operated in the UK you didn't necessarily worry too much about what was happening overseas beyond perhaps the continent if you're the energy industry well aside from the north sea there's there's not that much oil and gas in the UK you have to go elsewhere you have to go to more volatile parts of the world to find that that's now changing. If you're a British bank now, you're having to operate on a much more global scale. So you are much more exposed to these issues. So we are seeing that spread across different industries. Some are still playing catch up. It also depends on resources. One thing I've I've seen in my research is that some of the most well-funded intelligence teams are in the technology sector, but this is very new to them. The, their teams typically have only been around for a few years, maybe a decade at most. So they're really learning how to do this. Whereas energy companies, they may not have the same funding, but they have in many cases, decades of experience to draw on. And so it does vary industry by industry. The level of whether they have a team is part of that equation. But there's also the question of what are they doing with it? Are they, to come back to my earlier answer, are they just doing very tactical security focused intelligence or are they starting to integrate it into their strategic business decision making? That varies almost to a company level because it can be very personality dependent. It can vary a lot on how comfortable the executives are with integrating intelligence into their their decision making. It's very non-uniform and I think that that's something you see across the field. When we talk about these issues, often implicitly or explicitly, we think about uh, physical conflicts, the war in Ukraine, the war or the conflict in the Middle East, threats by terrorists to, for example, shipping lanes as we see them, and now really physical violence or the threat of such physical violence. However, there's also other fields, regulatory and otherwise. And I recently read that there was a congressional hearing in the U.S., about work that some consulting companies have been doing with uh, Saudi Arabia, with the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Saudi Arabia, where Congress is demanding these companies to hand over some information, some documents about their work there. And uh, the CEOs of those companies claim that if they comply with that request in the U.S. jurisdiction, that might put their employees in Saudi Arabia at risk, including being jailed, because, you know, there are different regulatory frameworks that are being applied. Are those aspects also part of what you consider geopolitical risks? I can't speak to that specific case because I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar enough with it, I'm afraid. But uh, in terms of the, the regulatory aspect, it absolutely is a, an output of geopolitics. What we're starting to see is great power competition is coming back. We're starting to see industrial policy form part of that. Uh, regulatory borders are being drawn up in a more aggressive way. So companies are having to pay attention to this. And I think at the heart of this dynamic is something really important, which is Understanding the kind of incentives, alignments and interests between companies and governments, they are starting to diverge. If a consulting company happens to be a kind of US headquartered 
company, that doesn't necessarily mean they can think about themselves anymore as an American company. They may have a very American culture, but their interests do not necessarily align entirely with the US. On a geopolitical standpoint, they will have customers around the world, they'll have employees around the world that they do have a duty of care for, that they have to think about. And that is really where I think the intelligence field is starting to add a lot of value, is it's helping to provide a perspective that is not necessarily that of the home government. It's in the interests purely of the company looking at what the company needs to navigate the sort of risks that await them. So there is a bit of a diversion of alignments there. So far, we've talked about these geopolitical issues primarily from a risk perspective as something that potentially threatens the business model of a company. Could it also be turned around and seen as an opportunity? And could a unit that deals with such issues within a company also not just form part of a defensive risk assessment team, but also in a more proactive way as part, being part of business development, for example, opening up new opportunities? Absolutely. This is something that's been proposed by academic member of the field, Cara Widhelm. A few years ago, she wrote a fantastic paper along with another academic, TJ Lunardi, where they talked about something called opportunity intelligence. And it was precisely this, that it's not just about risks, it's also about spotting opportunities. And it's a very logical view. I happen to subscribe to it. A recent Harvard Business Review article by Dr. Maria Robson-Morrow, who I mentioned earlier, described intelligence as a competitive advantage, that it, it allows you to go where others fear to tread. And that's quite a powerful force, especially if we're getting into this very complex, very geopolitically uncertain world, having a business unit that can tell you, this looks scary, you know, the news looks bad, there's lots of sensationalist reporting coming out of this country, but actually we think on the ground things are okay, we can go there, we can do business, we, we can make this work. That's a very, very powerful force. And then the flip side of that is that Other companies that may not have the same intelligence capabilities, they may feel compelled for duty of care reasons to withdraw from a market in a more sensitive fashion, that, that they see something happening, they pull out and essentially cede that market to anyone who can look at that and say, we think we can stay, we think this is a safe place for us to, to continue to operate. So it gives you a, a better degree of accuracy in your decisions and, and any increase in accuracy brings an increase in opportunities. And it may also be a good pitching opportunity for people working in that field or trying to push that field it's not just a cost factor it might also be a potential for growth it absolutely is i would say that's something that a lot of security intelligence professionals need to be advocating for i think we need to be more proactive about this we traditionally fall in the risk mindset it comes with the territory of being a, a security function we tend to take that pessimistic view of the world I think it's something we need to market better is get out there and say, you know, look, we're not just looking for the bad things. We are looking for the opportunities here as well. And with that, I think we'll grow a, a greater comfort to engage with them on a, on a more strategic footing, not just seeing them as a, as a reactive crisis response mechanism. Executive briefing, what you should read now. We ask our guests to provide a few resources, uh, books, journals, online sites, whatever you would like to recommend. There's two books that I regularly recommend in this field. The first one is Political Risk by Amy Zegart and Condoleezza Rice. 
And this book talks about essentially the problem rather than the solution. It explains to companies what they risk on the political front when they operate in a, an uncertain geopolitical environment, when they're faced with political pushback. It's, I think, a very good book at describing the problem. But like I said, I think its limit is that it doesn't really describe the solution other than saying, think more about this, think about political risk and factor it into your decision making. But it doesn't necessarily talk about who should be thinking about this. And that is one of the big questions right now. There's various parts of companies that understand geopolitics, your public affairs, government affairs teams, your intelligence teams. And I think they've both got very important roles to play. And understanding who you can talk to to deal with political risk is really important. So that book is very good for executives who need convincing on the problem. So I think that's quite a useful one. In terms of solutions, a book I've been recommending a lot at the moment is called Block by Block by Stephen Weber. And this book, it was written in 2019, so it's fairly recent, but it was written just before the current kind of geopolitical, uh, to use the term used earlier, polycrisis started. He sees the world fragmenting into very regulatory bordered blocks and describes the modern form of business, the kind of globally integrated enterprise, the kind of multinational as we understand it today, as not being sufficient to operate across those borders. And he describes the need to evolve companies into something much more regionalized that is designed to operate separately, for example, in Europe to Asia. He sees this as being driven by regulatory changes. I think... What we've seen in the last few years is it's a combination of regulatory changes, but also geopolitical conditions. You know, I, I can't fault him at all for not having seen the pandemic coming and, and the conflicts that we've seen since. But I think his treatment, his answers are absolutely still very relevant, uh, even though it is designed with more regulatory shift in mind. Uh, so I, I really like that book because it's a kind of complement to political risk in saying, here's what you can actually do about it. Again, it doesn't necessarily dip into who's responsible for this, who you should get your expertise from, but it does start to define the, the kind of strategic reorientation that companies need to be thinking about in, in this very geopolitically divided world. Thank you very much. And as always, we will put links to those two titles in our show notes so that people can look it up there. I would like to move on to a little bit to the issue of intelligence gathering. In a corporate setting, in your experience, in your research, what do you think, what are the, the major building blocks or, or maybe also obstacles when it comes to intelligence gathering within corporations? I think the first one is there's no playbook for how to do it. The field is very, very immature, even though it's been around for centuries, that there's no standard model for this. If you want to set up a legal department in your company, you go out and hire lawyers. There's a very defined rule set around what is a lawyer. I can't just call myself a lawyer. I'd have to go study law, pass the bar, etc. That doesn't exist in the intelligence space. My, my grandmother could tomorrow decide she wants to become an intelligence professional in the private sector very smart lady, but doesn't necessarily have the correct experience or qualifications for this, but there's nothing stopping her. And that is a little bit problematic. It's something I see across the field is job descriptions often vary. The terminology it can be very confusing and muddled. There's a lot of different job titles for the same jobs. I myself have gone to interviews where I've suddenly realized halfway through it's a cyber security intelligence role. I'm not a cyber security professional. The interviewer has suddenly realized I'm not a cybersecurity professional, even though we've been speaking for half an hour and, and we've been using the same terminology, but with very different meanings. So that's part of the challenge there. 
That said, there is starting to be more of a consensus. There are a lot of professional bodies out there, uh, industry associations, kind of uh, informal intelligence sharing groups, where companies are starting to talk and they're starting to share best practices with each other. One thing that often surprises people is in, in government intelligence, it's a very competitive landscape. Even the closest allies tend not to share intelligence very openly with each other. James Olson, a kind of scholar practitioner from the, the US intelligence community, described it as there may be friendly countries, but there are no friendly intelligence services. In the private sector, you can almost reverse that. There, there may be companies that are fierce, bitter commercial rivals, but their intelligence teams probably know each other on a first name basis and they, they're probably talking almost on a daily basis. So there is a lot of sharing going on and that is starting to harmonize the way the business works. In terms of how they go about collecting intelligence, it's really however you can. You know, we don't necessarily have access to the same tools governments do, although that is changing. You know, there are private solutions out there now that offer some very sophisticated intelligence collection capabilities, but they're not necessarily that useful or cost effective for the sort of questions businesses have. So the vast majority of what we do tends to be in the open source world, gathering intelligence online. There's a lot of what I would call human intelligence, but not in the sense people would traditionally think of it, kind of spies and undercover liaisons. In the private sector, it's generally about just getting out there and talking to people in a, in a more diplomatic way. It's about meeting with various government counterparts. It's about meeting with experts, academics, whoever you can find that can help give you information on a topic you need. There's also kind of internal liaison. Uh, I spoke earlier about kind of government affairs and public affairs teams in companies. They're a tremendous resource for intelligence professionals. The way I like to describe the relationship is the kind of equivalent of the State Department or the Foreign Office and the CIA or MI6, that they both have the ability to go out and collect information on the world. Public affairs, government affairs teams, they, they spend a lot of time working as diplomats, essentially, going out, meeting with governments, discussing the regulatory, but also the geopolitical landscape. And those conversations can be very, very useful for intelligence teams. Where intelligence teams can complement them is by filling in the gaps where there isn't necessarily a, a diplomatic answer or where governments aren't talking about something. Intelligence teams can, can kind of offer a solution to that. So there's a few different ways to go about it. It really depends on the needs of the company, the sort of questions they have and, and what's cost effective, because these teams tend to be very small. Uh, they don't have CIA like reach uh, agents all around the world. It's often one or two people who are just trying to find things however they can. So very varied, but uh, there's some fairly novel and fairly innovative solutions that are out there and teams are proving pretty adept at it. What we're finding is I, I found this in my research, some quite startling examples of where government intelligence agencies had failed to predict major incidents, whereas corporate teams had seen it coming and they were able to react far more nimbly because they don't necessarily have the same restrictions on how they operate. That's a fascinating point. I want to drill a little bit deeper on. And I mean, there is a reason why this podcast is called Business Diplomacy. The reason being is that we think that, you know, there is a lot of overlap in the way which traditionally States or nations represented their interests in, in ways in which uh, companies, multinationally operating companies, are doing it. But what you're saying is that even in large kind of well-staffed corporations, those teams tend to still be very small in the sense is that it's not very common to have representatives in different countries that are stationed somewhere and are able to keep an ear on the ground and really on a permanent basis talk to people such as states would do that through their embassies, for example. In some ways, 
most of the kind of named intelligence teams, the people whose job title is something to do with intelligence, they tend to be quite few in number. There are exceptions. I've I've come across some companies with literally hundreds of intelligence analysts on staff, um, but they, they tend to be rare. Most teams are very lean. I think the average is between six and 10 people across the industry uh, per company, and that's in the, the big multinationals. What they do have, however, are those people staffed all over the world. They have those embassies everywhere, which is local offices, local production sites, and the people who work there, they will often talk to local security managers, local business leaders, and so on. The other asset that they can draw on is outsourcing. There are a lot of phenomenal intelligence vendors out there. These are companies who do have hundreds of analysts, often all around the world, who speak local languages, who read the local newspapers, who go out and meet with local people, and they package intelligence and sell it to, to companies. These vendors are very variable in quality. It's an open market, and with any open market, you know, buyer beware is is a, an important rule there. Some of them really do have phenomenal assets and phenomenal insights around the world. Others, less so. And it can be hard to tell sometimes because it's not something they will freely advertise. So there is a degree of caution there. But by using those vendors, uh, you can kind of multiply your forces. You can have a reach far beyond what we'd, you would have otherwise. I think the other factor that gives corporations a bit of a leg up over governments and this is a kind of mobility and flexibility government intelligence is very tightly it's very bureaucratic it's very regulated it has processes for doing almost everything it has rule books for doing it almost everything the private sector doesn't they're able to operate in the best way that gets them the information they need so to give you an example when the arab spring was starting to boil that was the example I was talking about earlier, where companies, a lot of the energy companies in particular that were operating across North Africa and the Middle East, saw this coming. They had people on the ground, they were watching social media, they were starting to really understand something was wrong, this seemed a little bit bigger and it may be problematic. By comparison, government intelligence agencies broadly appear to have been caught off guard by the scale of this. And I think part of the reason for that is, one, social media was something very, very new at the time. They didn't have the flexibility to integrate it back then in the same way the private sector had. The private sector had very little else to go on, so they were almost forced to use it. But they also didn't necessarily have people on the ground in the same way. They have people in embassies, they have collection offices on the ground, but the analysts who are looking at this problem are sometimes thousands of miles away. They're sometimes actually forbidden from traveling to these countries, so they can't quite get that taste of ground atmospherics. And if you think about traditional intelligence collection, you know, if you think about human intelligence, what we would call humans, if you have a covert source inside a North African government cabinet or uh, inside a senior military officer's uh, headquarters, they can get you very, very good intelligence about what's going on in that specific room. But the people in that room may not know how bad things are across the country. They may not know how big the problem is. And that's where something like social media intelligence or looking at those broader ground atmospherics can actually be more valuable. So I think that does give them a bit of an advantage in some ways. Governments have, of course, learned from this. They now uh, employ social media intelligence in a much more dynamic way. But I think that flexibility that allowed the private sector at that moment in time to have a leg up is something that still persists today. They're able to operate in a very flexible way and, and find creative solutions that often acts as a force multiplier.
Let's talk about that a little bit, technology and, and uh, social media. And of course, we've seen, I mean, not just in this field, but in general, a huge change over the past decades. Uh, first, you know, with the implementation, the advent of online, the internet, a lot of information moving there, the rise of uh, social media. And now, more recently, a wave of artificial intelligence solutions that seem to be coming up on almost on an hourly basis. I sometimes have the impression that, you know, whenever I do something else uh, for an hour or two and I go back online, there is some new service, some new functionality, some provider that has come up with an even more capable algorithm. How does that affect the kind of work that you do? That's a very, very good question. I think in some ways it's bringing advantages. There are some phenomenal intelligence tools available now that are able to sift huge amounts of social media and online data and find specific points of interest for intelligence teams. There are a number of tools that are able to scrape the web in a way that in the past you would need hundreds of analysts speaking hundreds of different languages to do for you, and they can now do that automatically. They're also getting very accurate. What they're able to look at is you know, if one person tweets saying there's been an explosion in this city and then no one else tweets about it, the system can often say, well, that's probably not real. It's probably just someone someone tweeting nonsense. But if suddenly they see 50 people tweeting it and they're all located within the same area, that's unlikely to be a joke. That's probably something serious. And it will ping the intelligence team and say, hey, you need to look at this. And then they can go do their own investigation. And it's something that previously would have taken maybe even days for them to find out something has happened, they can now find out in seconds. The flip side of that, however, is that AI is also allowing pranksters, people who who maybe have worse intentions, to spread misinformation at scale. You can now make 50 fake accounts, tweet something simultaneously, each with a very tailored message to give the impression something has happened when it hasn't necessarily happened. So there is a bit of an arms race going on there. The companies that offer these services are, are constantly evolving to try and uh, offer solutions to that. But it is a bit of a challenge. There are also solutions now that are starting to use kind of generative kind of GPT type technology to do the kind of analytical work. I am personally quite wary of those. Analysis is more than just gathering information and bundling it together. It's about really thinking it through in a structured way, offering competing hypotheses, challenging and testing assumptions, and testing those hypotheses against each other to try and find the most likely and accurate one, but without disregarding the others. LLMs are not designed to do that. They're designed to condense information into what is most likely to be the correct order of text. And what that can do is mean that you're ingesting information of varying accuracy in a much faster way and as a result you don't necessarily have the ability to vet it in the same way so i'm very cautious of those of course i'm you know, excited to see developments in this field but i think it's important to understand that something trying to convince you what it's saying is right is not the same as something giving you the correct information so i always uh, urge a little bit of caution when it comes to those kind of technologies what you're saying is that of course technology can help us to separate the signal from the noise in a certain way. I think Google did that even a couple of years ago. They were able to, for example, forecast flu waves in certain countries just by looking at symptoms that people were researching online. So if there was a spike in certain search terms that were entered in a particular region, they could predict that there was something coming in that area. And of course, that's very much the same of what you're saying. And the other side, of course, 
you also mentioned that uh, the potential for fake and, and misinformation is also rising, and this is something that is being discussed in many contexts, even to the point where some people say this is a threat to our democracy, our Western democracy at least, that countries such as Russia, for example, try to interfere in, in elections. Now in the recent conflict in the Middle East, I think we've seen several instances of fake images that have popped up of victims or damages that uh, were supposedly happening there. Is that something that will also affect the private sector or is that just a societal problem in general that we all have to deal with? I think it's both. You know, I think the way you described it there is very accurate. You know, AI is helping us cut the, the signal from the noise, but it's also adding more noise. Uh, so it's going to be a bit of an arms race. Whether it's a societal problem or a, a private sector problem, I think it's both. You know, they both need a good basis of information to make decisions on. That is what intelligence is all about. Whether it's voters at an election or whether it's a, a corporation deciding on a, an investment decision, they, they need a good solid basis of information. And in a world where information is, it's more available, but it's less reliable, that becomes a very challenging dynamic. I think this is where intelligence teams are becoming a, a real value add right now is when I was doing my research, I, I sat down with a, an intelligence analyst at, at one major company and he described it very eloquently as saying that he thought the field was growing so much because precisely this problem, that there was more information available than ever before, but the reliability of that information, what the, the idea of what is truth, does truth even exist in this context, has become such a massive, overwhelming question that executives are turning to people who can help them figure this out, who are experts in getting and vetting information, who can look at this stuff and say, what is true, what is not. For intelligence professionals, they've always had to deal with that uncertainty. You go back to the Cold War, you get a report from a you know, a walk-in in, in your embassy in Moscow who comes in and says, I want to spy for you. You have no idea if this person is real, if they're a fraudster after money, or if maybe, you know, the KGB has sent this person to try and mislead you. So that, that kind of uncertainty is just the baseline in which intelligence operates. What we're seeing now is a supercharged version of that, where every piece of information you get, you have to apply that same level of doubt and skepticism towards But intelligence professionals are naturally geared that way and they're very good at figuring out, you know, okay, we're hearing this thing in this place, let's check elsewhere, let's see if we can find cross-correlating information that supports that and is it likely to be true and if so, what would that mean? I think one good thing we're seeing out of this abundance of, of disinformation and, and fake news is that we're almost inoculating the population to it as well. More people are starting to think like intelligence officers, they're starting to think critically about the information they receive And you're seeing that effect. You're seeing these days some very sophisticated misinformation operations, some very, very credible looking fake images and things like that, that I think if you would have shown people 10 years ago, they would just believe. But now people look at it and they, they automatically go, this might be fake. And that, that's quite a healthy thing. And I think anything we can do to encourage that level of skepticism is important. But yeah, absolutely something really important for both society and companies. Yeah, you called it an arms race, and that's probably what we will see in the future as well, that on the one side, these fakes, also deep fakes, as they're sometimes called, they will get better and better and better. On the other hand, of course, also societal awareness on, on the one side, but also the technological means to maybe detect some of these things will also get better. So I guess we'll, we'll be in suspense uh, for quite some time uh, on uh, who which, which side prevails, the, the white one or the dark one. We talked a lot about open intelligence, so open source uh, information that is just there for basically anyone to, to look at, to interpret. 
But if we think about intelligence, espionage in the kind of the traditional sense, uh, also what we see in movies, it's of course also about, you know, planting bugs somewhere or having informants that you pay to get into some inner circles and all these kind of secretive, either illegal or at least, you know, in a shady area in the gray zone. Can you tell us a little bit what kind of role that also plays in companies, both in the sense that some companies may try to employ such tactics and on the other side, how other companies are trying to defend themselves against those attempts, either from other companies or from other state actors? This is a hugely important question. This was something I, I addressed in my thesis because there is a misperception. When you use the word intelligence, people immediately go, oh, yeah, spies. I've frequently walked into meetings and people have gone, oh, you're, you're the, the company's spy master, right? And I, I think that's actually quite a dangerous view. That is not what we do in this field. It's not, say, corporate and economic espionage doesn't happen. There is a huge problem that, that happens in a, in a very big way. But the security intelligence field is very, very focused on the mission of keeping people safe. And it's now starting to evolve into that more strategic world of, of navigating geopolitics. But what it doesn't do is competitive intelligence. As I mentioned before, you know, the, these companies talk to each other a lot. The intelligence teams rely on each other as a source of intelligence. They share very openly with each other. And if there's even a perception that a company is engaged in competitive espionage activity against one another, they would lose that access. People wouldn't trust them. So it, it becomes very, very harmful if people go that way. That's not to say it hasn't happened. And confusing the matter, some security intelligence teams have been caught in the past doing that kind of stuff. It's very rare. Um, it's very, very unusual. But because there's no playbook for doing this, because there's no rule set for what an intelligence team looks like, there's no qualifications, there's no school of private sector intelligence. There are starting to be some courses, but very few and far between. Companies will hire someone often out of an intelligence agency and say, we want you to do intelligence, but they don't fully understand what it is they're after. And a lot of their views are informed by those movies, by those kind of exciting views of, of spying. And there is a temptation for professionals to lead into that and to, to embrace the mystique a little bit. So that, that can be quite dangerous. The competitive espionage space absolutely exists. There's a, a fantastic book by Eamon Javers called Broker Trader Lawyer Spy, which is a collection of stories of, of some very sophisticated private sector intelligence operations against rival companies infiltrating spies. In one case, one of my favorite stories, a company recruited an individual at another company they were trying to spy on by convincing the individual that they were MI6, the British security services. They approached this guy at a conference and said, we need you to spy for us for national security reasons. And this individual probably thought they were doing a good thing. They thought this is the, the right moral thing to do. My country needs me. And it only came out a few years later that, in fact, this individual had, had been working for a, a private company and, and had been breaking the law. They had gone to some pretty interesting lengths to, to create this image. I think the spy could have probably just emailed the documents or whatever it was to this other company, but they set up dead drops for him like he was a, a secret agent. They had hollowed out rocks on his walk home for him to uh, leave documents in, you know, everything to create this image. So... There are some pretty extreme lengths companies will go to, but that is very rare. It's very unethical. It's very uh, it, it's very dangerous, I think. And I think overall for security intelligence professionals, that anyone who's even tempted to go that way needs to really rethink it because losing access to the industry at large is, is a huge loss of a very, very important source because the field overall is so cooperative precisely because most companies are facing the same threats. If you work for an energy company, 
and you're operating in a country where there's a, a militant group that's looking at blowing up energy infrastructure, they don't necessarily discriminate between the different companies. So it could actually be far more valuable to sit down with your counterparts at another energy company and say, hey, how are you seeing this threat? Do you have anything to tell us? And very often that's exactly how it works for, for that reason. So the espionage piece is, is very dangerous and tends to be very, very delineated. There are competitive intelligence teams within companies that do look at, at rival companies and, and markets and things like that. They tend to be very firewalled for precisely that reason, because if they start to mix, the perception is that the security teams can't be trusted by, by their peers and other companies and, and they lose access. So it's a fascinating world. What complicates it even further is that security intelligence teams are often responsible for defending against corporate espionage. Uh, they have what's called insider risk, which is looking at kind of counter espionage programs. They will often exist within the intelligence team. So it's a very, very muddled world. Uh, as I'm sure you can imagine, when I was pitching my thesis to my university, this was one of the big confusions. At first, they sort of thought, well, when I was talking about private sector intelligence, I was talking about government contractors, people doing intelligence, private companies doing intelligence for the government. And then when I said, no, no, I'm talking about corporations and, and you know, the average company and how they go about doing intelligence, they immediately jumped and, oh, so you're talking about corporate espionage and things like that. And I had to really unpack those layers of misperceptions. I think what you said about kind of movies influencing our views is absolutely true. The one movie I found about kind of private sector intelligence is about corporate espionage. It's a film called Duplicity and it's about rival companies trying to steal each other's secrets. It's a very entertaining film to watch from my perspective because it just doesn't look at all like anything I've seen in the field. Um, I really love the idea of companies having these really sophisticated CIA style briefing rooms where they're doing all these covert operations against each other. It's very funny to imagine, but that has not been my experience <laughs> of the field at all. Well, I guess that's the case with uh, every profession that uh, gets depicted in the movies, whether those be policemen, uh, doctors at a hospital, or maybe also your profession that reality sometimes looks or often looks less glamorous, but still it makes up for good stories parties so i think that's also something that is not to be underestimated a bold prediction the world in 10 years Luis, we have another segment in our podcast where we ask our guests to give us a bold prediction, as we call it, and tell us how they think the world will look like in 10 years from now in the field on the topic that we've been discussing here today. So what's your take? I would say I don't think my view is particularly bold. I think we're going to see more of what we're starting to see now, that the game is changing, the world is changing. Corporations are having to be more strategic. They're having to think about geopolitics more. And I think that's only going to intensify in the next 10 years. The way I've been describing it is, I think for the last 30 years, we spoke earlier about this kind of almost artificial calm environment that, that corporations have, have seen tremendous growth and success in going away. I would describe that 30-year period almost like playing drafts or, or checkers for the non-British audience. Um, it's a, it's a very flat board. It's a very simple game. There are strategies. There are traps you can fall into. But the way to get across the board and, and win the game is, is relatively simple. I think in 10 years' time, it's going to look more like chess. The board looks very similar. It's, you could almost mistake the two. But there are different rules governing each piece. Some companies are going to be able to do things that others can't. National champions are going to have more protections than perhaps others will. 
they're going to face different rules. It's still going to be possible to get across the board. It's still going to be possible to play the game, but the rules are much less certain. And I think as we go beyond 10 years, where it's going to start getting complicated is there are going to be new new rules added. And sometimes we're not even going to know those rules have been added. Only one player knows them. So the, the game is going to become a lot more confusing, a lot less certain. I think this is where intelligence is really important, that intelligence operates in an environment where the rules have never always been clear, where one side may be hiding something from the other. And to help navigate their decision makers through this, intelligence is, is giving them that certainty, it's giving them that help in navigating it. So I, I can see the field really growing in importance in the next decade, as I think we're all being forced now to to recognise that, that the rules of the game are changing. It looks similar, but it's very different to, to what we've been previously playing. Luis, we've come already to the end of uh, this episode. This was a fascinating uh, look into geopolitical intelligence from a corporate perspective, from someone who is doing that in their practical work, but obviously also has a deep insights uh, based on research. I greatly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, Luis. Likewise. Thank you very much for having me. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.